0: Okay. To the church of Thyatira. And to the angel of the church of Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like flames of fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching the seduct- seducing of my servants to participate oh to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols I gave her time to repent but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality behold I will throw her into a sick bed and those who commit adultery with her will I will throw "...into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead, and all the churches I will know that I am he, all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works, but to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching... You have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. To you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule with the, with a rod of iron as When earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches.
1: In the world, it's called tolerance. But in hell, called despair, the sin that believes in nothing, cares for nothing, seeks to know nothing, interferes with nothing, enjoys nothing, hates nothing, finds purpose in nothing, lives for nothing, and remains alive because there is nothing for which it will die. A quote from Dorothy Sayers, if you're not familiar with Miss Sayers, she's sort of like a sharper-tongued C.S. Lewis um, she was a novelist and a great thinker. I commend her to you. Another great British thinker put tolerance in these terms. He said, tolerance is the virtue of the man without convictions. Tolerance is the virtue of the man without convictions. I realize that today, talking about tolerance is very loaded. Very problematic, but hopefully, through the course of our study of the letter to the church in Thyatira, we'll see that the Christian perspective on tolerance is not one that leads to buses being driven into people or officers being shot or citizens being shot. It's one filled with a godly perspective of love that transforms hearts. But we do have to deal with what tolerance is in our society because that is what the church in Thyatira had to deal with. So we're going to look at it in some depth. To give a little perspective of maybe what our culture more broadly thinks of tolerance, I'll quote a little bit of a different thinker, H.L. Minken, cultural commentator, journalist, scholar, early 20th century. Uh, He had a sharp tongue as well, but he puts things in this way. So this is kind of the other perspective, what our culture says. Moral certainty is always a sign of cultural inferiority. The more uncivilized the man, the sure he is that he knows precisely what is right and what is wrong. All human progress, even in morals, has been the work of men who have doubted the current moral values. Not of men who have whooped them up and tried to enforce them. The truly civilized man is always skeptical and tolerant. His culture is based on, I am not too sure... When we bring up this idea of tolerance, we end up with a problem of words. A problem of what do you mean when you say it. A few weeks ago, our missional community was having our family dinner together, and we've had a practice lately of having a different person come up with a topic that we want to discuss. Daniel, a couple weeks ago, brought up the idea of tolerance, and we immediately ran into a problem, which was, what are we even talking about? When someone says you're intolerant or tolerance— It wasn't clear that we all knew what the other person was saying. This might be a problem in our culture as well, and it might be a solution for us as Christians as well, where we can be both tolerant and intolerant. D.A. Carson, a Christian thinker, wrote a book called The Intolerance of Tolerance, where he gets at this conundrum of what does it mean to value tolerance above maybe everything else. He says, Intolerance is no longer a refusal to allow contrary opinions to say their piece in public probably what we think it means when we say it. But he says that now in our culture, it must be understood to be any questioning or contradicting the view that all opinions are equal in value, that all worldviews have equal worth, that all stances are equally valid. To question such postmodern axioms is, by definition, intolerant. He's pointing out for us that in the public square now, Tolerance doesn't mean that you just allow people to say something and disagree with them. It actually means something more. And our pop culture, tolerance means that what's good for you is good for you, but what's good for me is good for me, and let's not have any conflict over that. And he points out, in I guess the title of the book itself, that tolerance is inherently intolerant. Tolerance is inherently intolerant. Bill Maher put it this way, if you know Bill Maher, don't get so tolerant that you tolerate intolerance. Don't get so tolerant that you tolerate intolerance. Or Tony Blair, the British Prime Minister, uh, caught this irony pretty well when he says, our tolerance is part of what makes Britain, Britain. So conform to it or don't come here. This is what's known as the tolerance paradox. That by being completely tolerant, you can't be because then you are inherently tolerant of the intolerant. And that's what Christians experience in culture, right? You talk to somebody who says, tolerance, you must be tolerant, you are intolerant because you're saying that you're wrong and I'm right. The other way around, I'm right and you're wrong. And then, of course, that person is saying the exact same thing to you, that their worldview makes you wrong. You're stuck in this paradox. You can't be completely tolerant. Now, different scholars and philosophers will try to get around this. Uh, Karl Popper says, and he was a—I'm almost done with the quotes, don't worry, Uh, but he basically got at this and said, you must be intolerant of intolerance. Otherwise, society falls apart. And he goes as far as to say that we should um, persecute it as criminal in the same way we should consider incitement to murder or kidnapping or the revival of the slave trade. That's how we should treat intolerance, as he was addressing this problem. So that's our, our big picture of tolerance. But we need to dive into the church of Thyatira, the church, one of the seven that John was writing to in the book of Revelations seven churches in modern-day Turkey, then I guess they called it Asia, um, that he was writing to to say what is going on in their context. And we're going to look at this through three different uh, lenses, or three different movements. First, we're going to talk about the commendation, commendation that John gives to the church in Thyatira. Then we're going to talk about the condemnation, the church in Thyatira. And finally, we're going to talk about the consolation, the church in Thyatira. And we're going to have this lens of tolerance because we'll see that's really what was at the root of the problem in Thyatira, at least by some definition of that word. So what is Thyatira? Okay, so it was a city in the ancient world. It wasn't a cultural center necessarily. It wasn't a religious center, but it did become somewhat of an economic center. There's not a whole lot about it in Scripture And there's somewhat less information that we can learn now because the city is essentially gone. I know I emailed Jen this week. Jen and Patrick visited some of these ancient sites, and this is one that's almost entirely wiped out. There's a few ruins left. Um, But there's some clues that we can learn about this particular group of people. They had thrived in this economic sense. Maybe they were in a good place along a trade route, and they had developed a large number, perhaps the most in the ancient world, of what are called trade guilds. I don't know if we've encountered this yet, in other cities and revelations, but essentially this is the way that they organize their economic life. And we know about one woman in particular named Lydia. This is another clue we have about Thyatira in the Bible. Lydia was the first Christian to be converted in Europe. In Acts 16, the account of Lydia is captured when she was in Philippi, In the letter of the Philippians, Philippi. Um, It says about Lydia, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of Purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized, in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Lydia would have been a member of one of these trade guilds. She was a one of the purple cloth. This was actually something that Thyatira was known for as well. Um, garment makers and dyers in particular were um, an area that they thrived in, that they um, had developed in a way that had been exported to the other cities in the area. And so Lydia had found success. She was a strong, independent woman. And we can speculate, we can't say for sure, but we wonder if perhaps Lydia was the one who when she returned home, or maybe someone from her household, had brought the good news of Christ to the city of Thyatira. And that message was brought there in a, a church began to thrive in that city. A church began to be, uh, to be born there. And in this time, there wasn't a, a Soma here and a Reality there and a Pacific Crossroads. There was one church in Thyatira. So this was the church that was springing up there. And, and Jesus, who is the, the author through John of this letter to Thyatira, has some words for the people there. He says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance. It's from verse 19. And that your latter works... Exceed the first. So from the outside, it looks like all is going well. And these are sincere commendations. Jesus is saying, good work, keep it up, these are good things. There's a church that's starting to thrive, and there are things to celebrate in. If you remember when we talked about the church in Ephesus a couple weeks ago, they were actually the opposite of this. They had started out strong, but their works had started to fade away. And so Jesus is saying, you know, this is going well here. This is going well here, Um, but we're going to dig in a little bit further here and see that they actually have the opposite problem as, as a church in Ephesus. In Ephesus, they'd done a really good job of rooting out the false teachers and having good theology, but then their practice had fallen away. Here in Thyatira, we have sort of the opposite problem, where things are going well, we're seeing good results, but there is a cancer which has started to infiltrate their theology and that is at risk of undermining everything. Now, Lydia was part of the, the guild that was for the um, the purple cloth, but there were many others, like I said. There was wool workers, there was linen workers, outer garment workers, dyers, leather workers, tanners, potters, bakers, slave dealers, and bronze smiths. These are the types of ways in which Thyatira is organized. And to understand how these guilds worked, it's a little bit more intense than, say, a union today because your entire life would be oriented around this. If you get a job now, you get your... 401k, you get your health benefits, and you maybe get a sense of community with your coworkers. But a guild was like all of that plus more. This was your social structure, your safety net. If you, maybe your funeral costs would be paid by them, your things go wrong, they're the ones looking out for you. They had real estate that they centered around in, they had events, they guided the contracts that were coming through on these different things. They were, had all the power. And so to thrive in Thyatira, there was really no other choice than to be a part of the guild of your profession. There was really no other choice. This was how the social and economic life was structured. And as we start to move a little bit further into the letter and we start talking about the condemnation, we need to understand what that meant, practically. Because, as I said, it wasn't just economic and it wasn't just social. In Thyatira, it bled over into the spiritual. Your guild would have had a god, an idol, the one who brought blessing, the one who made things go, the one that your entire life was centered around. So there would be ceremonies, sacrifices to the god of your guild. That would be how you essentially practice your pagan religious life, would be to get involved with the community, and you would go, and you would make sacrifices, and you would eat the sacrifices. And you know what? Sometimes these events got a little crazy. There was sexual immorality as a part of this too. By that I mean... The type of idea you saw with the bales in the Old Testament, temple prostitution, it was part of the religious practice was to essentially fornicate. Maybe the parties just got crazy, or maybe it was a formalized act. Depending on the guild, we don't have all the details of each of them, but we do know that this was a component of what it meant to be part of a trade guild in Thyatira. So, you're a Christian, but you also want to eat. You want to have a job want that health insurance you want those benefits what do you do how do you navigate this conundrum it was a question that was very poignant to them but hopefully we'll be able to explore how it might still be poignant to us but let's see what what John says to them or what Jesus says to them through John this is the condemnation that is brought um, against how Thyatira's church is, is handling itself but I have this against you that you tolerate that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. So some Christians had decided that they were going to have it both ways. They're going to be a part of the church, but they also were going to be a part of the guild and they participated, they tolerated food sacrificed to idols. They ate it. The sexual immorality, they participated. I don't envy the choice that was before them. But also, I wonder if the choices before us are so different. This is the hard work of this message for us because I'm turning it over to you all to brainstorm about Los Angeles. In what ways are we asked to tolerate in Los Angeles that is at odds with our faith, specific to Los Angeles or your life as well. But this is where we do this hard work of taking an ancient scripture and looking at ourselves and saying, what is this like for us? What in Los Angeles are we asked to tolerate that is at odds with what Christ has called us to? Okay, so our own self-achievement is the highest priority rather than caring for people or anything else. And what are some of the types of sacrifices we'll have to make to achieve that? So even the amount of time that we give over, those careers that some of us have that just take over, kind of prevent us from living out faithful lives in other areas sometimes. And that's just the expectation of the industry. What can you do? What can you do? Who else? <laughs> yeah, so Jen's talking about the foster care community and that since their government is involved in that, they could change the script on us, and then what would we do? I have two kids that are foster right now. Hopefully they'll be adopted soon. We're in the same, same position. I think that also raises um, more of a cultural one of parenting. As a parent, there is sometimes a lot of pressure about how you do it, because if you do it wrong, there's a lot of judgment about it, um, and that's not necessarily guided by Scripture. The only, I think, fortunate part of that is that there's so many different opinions that you can kind of pick a camp, but then you're still not picking Jesus. Huh? What other ideas do you guys have? <clears throat> And that kind of links up with what Jeff was saying as far as being about ourselves is the highest priority. If someone sees you not being about yourself, there's almost a criticism implicit in that. You know, why aren't you you know, using that time to go out and do the thing that's good for you? You're giving it to others. Any other ideas? Yeah, so if the economy of dating in Los Angeles involves the transaction of sexual benefits, it's kind of hard to participate in that economy without having anything to, to give. And that's just the expectation. A couple other ones that came to my mind. I'm not an actor, but I can imagine that moment when you're trying to break through and you've had little parts and then finally you you get the call to have the big role and then you read the script and you have to be naked or you have to hook up on or something about it is just completely at odds with your faith. And how do you navigate that? Do you turn down the opportunity, which we know is your one shot, Right? Uh, at least by the world's standards, how do you turn that down in that moment? Um, or, and I'll try to use the, avoid the colloquial term, but a, a, I've, I've been around a group of, of young Christians that had so much pressure in Los Angeles on their physical appearance that they uh, some of them were very open and in fact went through with breast augmentation surgery. Um, to compete here. And that was just sort of the norm in L.A. And certainly those outside of the Christian community, it's just a norm here in L.A. that if you're going to, your body, it has to be a certain way. And if it's not that way, then you don't get to be a part of uh, what's going on. And to kind of bring this back to the, the opening, I think that ironically, probably Los Angeles, as well as other cities, but maybe particularly in Los Angeles, uh, the pressure of tolerance is maybe stronger than anywhere else. And I almost would offer to trade the word tolerance for like agnostic pluralism of like this idea that you have to be okay with everybody else that 's the only way you can be, and if you 're not then you 're out and there 's a lot of pressure in different communities around the lunchroom, um, wherever you are for that to be okay, for you to be okay with with what I believe or for the other way around, and you can 't say that one thing is absolutely right or wrong, and I think that is more more prevalent here and of course the the flip side to this is if you if you don 't give in to the cultural uh, norm. Then you make a sacrifice. You will not get paid as much. You will not get the promotion. You might not get the part. Things might not go as well as you would hope. And that's what Thyatira was faced with. And so some Christians in the city of Thyatira chose, "I'm going to have it both ways." Because what other choice do I have? It's an impossible, um, it's an impossible tension to navigate. It seems. <clears throat> but there's one thing about Thyatira that I want to focus in on because actually the the story before this we haven't talked about as a church yet but in Pergamum they were dealing with some similar types of tensions but one thing about, about Thyatira was the way that this particular tension was normalized in the church and it was through Jezebel in Pergamum, the other city it was from the outside forces from the outside influencing that which is a lot of what we talked about here but in Thyatira there was a normalizing voice within the church that gave the people what they wanted Yes, you can do both. You can be a Christian. Look, our church is flourishing. The good works are abounding. It's fine. It's not a big deal. It's fine. This woman's name was not actually Jezebel. If you're familiar with uh, the scriptures, there was a person named Jezebel. It's also something that's stuck with popular culture as probably the most evil woman uh, to ever exist in some ways. Um, Jezebel was a queen of the northern, the northern kingdom of Israel, back when they were separated in the Old Testament in first kings. Jezebel was the daughter of the, the king of Tyre. And Jezebel uh, was brought in by King Ahab because it was a politically smart thing to do. He's building kingdoms, he's looking over at Tyre, and he says, you know, if I marry the daughter of Tyre, I will have more power And things will go well for me. and I will build the power of northern kingdom of Israel. This is a good thing in his mind. And so he goes out and he does this. And almost immediately, what happens is Jezebel brings in her gods. He says, we're going to worship Baal. That's what my, you know, if you're going to marry me, you have to be at least okay with with worshiping Baal and also Asherah. These are two Old Testament sort of other god idols kinds of things aren't really gods, but that's what they called them. Um, And so Ahab says, you know, okay, it sounds like it's worth it. And you know what happens almost immediately? Jezebel starts killing the prophets of the people of God. So the the king Ahab lets this come in, and she goes on this rampage and starts taking out the people. And what was happening is that in these temples, these cultural practices of the Baals were brought in that look a whole lot like that, Probably why John uses this example, because in the worship of Baals, there was temple prostitution, And there was a sacrifice to idols and the eating of this meat. And so, basically, Jezebel did to the ancient Israel community what is happening here by this woman um, in the city of Thyatira. And scholars tend to look at this and say, yes, it probably was an individual person. They can't really pin down her name, but it sounds like it was a person with influence. And the exact same thing that almost destroyed Israel, the northern kingdom, has now infiltrated in Thyatira. The specific practices, even... And so she comes in and she convinces people that it's okay to do this and they're going along with it because things are just going better. Things are just going easier. But as we see from Jesus, they really aren't. He is pretty specific about what should happen here. He says he gave her time to repent but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. So he didn't just come in and destroy her right away. He gave her time to repent, and she's not repenting. Or her children, which are really the people who are going along with her and agreeing with her. Verse 22, it says, Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each according to your works." This doesn't sound like the gracious, cuddly Jesus that sometimes people like to think. And the reason why I think he's so harsh here is because this is what kills churches. Having a a wolf enter into the flock, the whole metaphor of the shepherd, having a wolf enter into the flock and giving false teaching poisons a community. And so if you're a missional community leader, if you're an elder, if you're just a leader in the community, this is something that cannot be tolerated. It cannot be tolerated because it undermines the entire church. It can get in like a cancer and take over. And so Jesus through John is being very specific about what's going to happen here. There will be condemnation and judgment right away. We're not waiting for later here. He said, I gave her a chance, but this is what's going to happen. The bed that was used for adultery and for temple prostitutes now is going to become the sick bed. It's going to be this ironic twist that what was being used for evil is now what's going to eradicate this cancer from within the church in Thyatira. And even the the followers of this Jezebel are in the same position. But as you can see, they're given a chance to repent still. But if they won't, they're in for the same. They're in for the same. This doesn't mean that God's not gracious. It means that he is gracious because it is unloving to allow a false teacher to bring people away from the truth. It is unloving to allow people to be drawn away from Christ and just accept, yeah, your way is as great as my way. Let's just agree to disagree. It's unloving. But I want to be a little bit more nuanced in how we talk about tolerance, because I don't want you to think that Christians, our role is to go out and tell everyone you're wrong and I'm right. Christian tolerance has a few different levels we can think about. Number one, legal tolerance. Should we be intolerant of Muslims in our kids' schools? Should we be intolerant of a coworker who believes in Baha'i faith instead of Christianity? No. We should not be intolerant of that. We should be Tolerant in the sense of allowing people to um, have belief, understandings to um, people outside of the church, we can let them explore because in the marketplace of ideas, Christians do not need to be fearful that they won't pick us. We believe that we have the truth, and so we don't have to be fearful that some other argument will be more persuasive. We have a God who is able to change hearts. And we don't have to go out there and fight for it ourselves by arguing in someone's face you're wrong because it says so. Here, they're not coming from the same position or the same worldview, and we benefit from that legal tolerance. It's one of the beautiful things about this country that so many people have fought for is the ability to believe in something. And so, as Christians, do we allow legal tolerance? Absolutely, we should fight for it. We should allow people to have their own beliefs. This is crucial, and it's more loving to be able to invite somebody into a faith rather than impose it upon them? Because Christianity is not something that can be imposed. As a state religion, it's not such a great thing. Historically, we see that. It doesn't work out so well. But as an invitation, as a hope, it's a beautiful thing. So legal tolerance, okay. All right, what about um, secondary issues? Should we be intolerant of other Christians who disagree with us about the day of the week on which the rapture is going to occur or if a rapture is going to occur or when and how a person should be baptized the way communion works. No. We can be tolerant in the circle of people who love Jesus as Lord and Savior, people who look and say, the Christ died for me and that is what makes me right with God. We can be tolerant of other people having disagreements about secondary issues, call them open-handed issues. We should be tolerant. We can have discussions, disagreements. We can maybe have a good-spirited argument. But should we be intolerant? Should we be hateful towards Christians who don't agree with us on something that's not at the center of our faith? We should be tolerant of that. We should be tolerant of that. We should be intolerant of those close-handed issues. We should be intolerant of Christians within the community who are saying, well, Jesus is my way, but he's not the only way. We should be intolerant of people who are undermining the gospel and its saving power. We're suggesting that sin is not that serious, that it won't separate us eternally apart from some savior. We should be intolerant of this. And that doesn't mean that you're going to be necessarily in a person's face and arguing. That's not what intolerance means necessarily. What it means is as leaders, as thinkers, we're going to point people back towards scripture and say, this is what the faith says. I'm not going to, I'm not going to compromise on This this is crucial to what it means to be a Christian, and that is what we're intolerant over. And in Thyatira, that is where the tolerance came in. They were tolerant of what they should be intolerant of. And this is going to get a little bit technical here, but I know the one thing that bugged me as I, as I started looking at this passage is meat given to other, other gods. All right? We don't believe that there are other gods, so does it matter whether the meat was sacrificed to them, right? As Christians, we have freedom in that. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 8. He talks about, "Um, but some through former associations with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol and their conscience, being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple... Will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brothers stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brothers stumble. But Paul is saying it's not the magical meat that is the problem here. It's the why. Why are you eating this meat? Why are you taking that role in the movie? Why do you leave your wife and kids at home so you can work that extra hour so you can get that advancement? Your kids don't know you're growing up. Why do you make these sacrifices that are not from God? What is your motivation? Later in chapter 10, um, Paul points about, out about this right. He says, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. So even though the meat itself is not tainted in some way that sends us to hell. It's just meat. It's sacrificed to a fake God. But in that community, they're saying, it's not worth it to me to hang on to holiness, to hang on to God and say, you are the one who has done this for me, to say that this is not right. I am worshiping something other than you when I eat this meat. And so in 1 Peter, we have a better guide. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. And living as servants of God. So the people in Thyatira could have said, you know what, I'm free. I can eat the meat, no big deal. See, Paul talked about it. But really, when you look at it more deeply, as Peter says it, do not use your freedom as a cover-up from evil. So that's a question for you to ask yourself as you had your mind stirred, hopefully, about what sacrifices you're tempted to make. What accommodations you want to make. Are you using that excuse of freedom as a cover-up from evil or are you living as a servant of God? There's tremendous freedom in the gospel, but it's not to be used as a cover-up from evil. The assimilations and the syncretism that was going on in here put a little bit more broad perspective. When people were captured in the ancient world, when the Israel was sent to exile, for instance, what was the technique that was used? Cultural assimilation. They would put people in because they know it would dilute a faith and it would take over, and essentially that's what we would allow. If we didn't stick to the things that are key, we would allow assimilation and syncretism to dilute Christianity of its power. In Los Angeles, this is a hard message because this city asks a lot of us. We can put in the out group and feel lonely or not have that success so easily. So, church and that, what hope for us is there in Los Angeles? What is our consolation? By consolation, I don't mean second place prize. I mean something more like what the dictionary says. comfort received by a person after a loss or disappointment because the Christian life necessarily is going to cause you to give some things up. It's what it looks like to be changed, being changed from one thing to another. And if you're a Christian, if you've really experienced the transformation of God, something that was in you before is now changed and gone. And so what is our consolation? What can this letter tell us? The key words that seem to stand out here are to keep my works to the end, to hold fast. But this doesn't sound like much of a consolation. Essentially, as everything is against us, we just hold on tight. We just grip it and don't let go. John's words to the church in Thyatira says, But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay any other burden." Only hold fast to what you have until I come. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. So there were some faithful there that were holding strong. The ones who were following Jezebel can repent, but there were some who were faithful and rejecting this practice, making those sacrifices. And Jesus is encouraging and imploring, hold fast. And then he goes on. He says, The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him, I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father. This is almost a direct quote from Psalm 2. In Psalm 2, John is evoking this this sort of messianic hope that the line of David would be not only um, cared for, but ultimately would be, become the king of nations, to make the nations a heritage, that the earth would be the possession of those that hold tight, and that the powers like the trade guilds, like the culture in Los Angeles, would be broken with a rod of iron and dashed to pieces like a potter's vessel. And of course, when a, a writer of scripture references part of scripture, he's sort of bringing in the whole freight along with it, the, the context of Psalm 2. And so an ancient reader would have had in mind Psalm 2, and it goes on in Psalm 2 beyond what John wrote. He wrote, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So John is channeling that whole picture that in Psalm 2, what we're talking about, becoming a conqueror, Becoming this inheritance of kingdoms, it was through Christ. That's the son who's being kissed. And he's saying, that is who you cling to because it's a bigger perspective. Ultimately, you have a great inheritance through him that's more than what you could achieve by making these accommodations now. There is hope by holding fast, but still, it feels so hard to hold fast just to make sacrifices to make this work. Is that how we earn God's approval? Is that how we maintain being on the good side of the son? And to really get at the the hope of that We need to dig back into this Jezebel account and understand what was happening there. And honestly, you should go back and just read this story. I'm not going to go through the whole thing because it's a little long, but it's incredible and it's also hilarious um, in what happened with Elijah on Mount Carmel. You all might be familiar with this, maybe not, but essentially Elijah, after Jezebel took power with King Ahab, had been uh, in hiding. He was a wanted man and now the prophets of Israel are being killed. They're being hidden by Obadiah and things are sort of coming to a head. And Elijah runs into Obadiah and he says, all right, let's, let's have it out. Let's, let's put this to the test. Who is the real God? Who has the real power? And so he goes out to Ahab, Elijah and Ahab head to head. And Ahab says, is it you, you troubler of Israel? And Elijah's like, I haven't been the troubler of Israel, um, but it's, you've abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baal. So the same tension is being brought to a head, this climactic moment So what happens? Elijah gets everyone together and says, we're going to have this battle royale between our gods. And he gets all the people there who now have done this assimilation. They've syncretized in the Baals and the Asherahs. And they're sort of saying, which way do we go? Which side do we pick? It's clear, though, that it's going to be one or the other. It's not going to be a mix. There's only one truth. And so Elijah says to the people, it says, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal then follow him, then the people did not answer him a word. They want to hold out and see who's going to win this battle. And this is the question for us. Is it Los Angeles? Is it your job that you're going to follow? Or is it him? Are you limping along between the two opinions? In this letter to the church of Thyatira, John is recreating this, this ultimate confrontation. And so here's where it gets amazing. They line up. They say, bring all the prophets of Israel and all the prophets of Baal. And they have like 450 Baal and like 400 Asher prophets. There's a lot of people for that team. It looks not so good for Elijah because he's the only one over here. Okay, and so they say, all right, now whoever can like make this sacrifice thing work, that's the winner, essentially. And so the the prophets of Baal start, they start dancing and evoking and nothing's happening. They have their altar. They're asking for fire to come down and, and consume the sacrifice. They're getting all worked up and nothing's working and it's, it's getting a little frustrating. They're saying, oh, Baal, answer us. And so at noon, Elijah, this is, this is amazing. Just check this out. Elijah says to them, cry aloud for he is a God. Talking about Baal. For either he is musing or he is relieving himself or he is on a journey or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. So the God you worship here in Los Angeles, can it be mocked in this way? It probably can. What are you really living for when you make these sacrifices sometimes? I think we can be like Elijah and say, your God is dead. God lives. And so once he stirs them all up, they start cutting themselves. They're dancing. They're evoking. Nothing is happening. The sacrifice is sitting there. So Elijah, this is great showmanship. He goes over to his altar, and he digs a, a big trench around it, and he does like 12 rocks to make it like Israel. And he, he starts pouring water on it. He's like, oh yeah, you think this is an accident? You think it's going to catch on fire its own, like with the Santa Ana winds? No, no, no. He's pouring water on it one, two, three times, and he's like, "Oh." And it gets consumed and the water gets all lapped up and it's just like extremely obvious which God is living and which God is dead, which God is living and which God is dead. But notice, it was the sacrifice that was consumed. What are the people's response? The people, after Elijah says, answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God. And you have turned their hearts back he's saying god turn their hearts back by a display of your power turn their hearts back to me their response and all the people saw it they fell on their faces and said the lord he is god the lord he is god god displayed his power by bringing down fire from heaven upon the sacrifice and consuming it he didn't consume the people they repented they repented and their hearts were changed That's what he's calling us to. The last line in our letter to Thyatira talks about the morning star. And I will give to him the morning star. The morning star is brought up again later in Revelation in chapter 22. It says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things to the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. What do you hold fast to? The morning star. Jesus himself. That is what you hold fast to. The people who were calling upon Baal were holding fast to their dancing. They were holding fast to their cutting themselves, their implorations of God, their own holiness. They were saying, look at me, please respond, Baal, and nothing happened. That is not how you hold fast to God. You don't shout and crowd and say, look at how great I am. You hold fast to the morning star. And on the cross, God brought down... Condemnation from heaven upon Christ. Just like that fire came down upon the altar, except for this sacrifice was not consumed. This sacrifice became all the brighter as the morning star. And their hearts were changed and they turned back. And so that is what we hold on to. The morning star that is all the brighter for God bringing down the condemnation that should have been ours upon him. That's the hope that we have. That's why we're able to say, I will not just be tolerant if you're taking away the hope that I have, I will hold fast to the morning star. Let me pray. Father God, the God of tolerance, help us to slay it, help us to reject it, help us to see the Jezebel underneath and instead to choose you to know that even if temporary sacrifices are made, ultimately, they're not the sacrifices that would destroy us. Lord, in this moment, in this time, help us to find that right perspective on tolerance, that of love, that of being able to love because we were loved when we didn't deserve it. That's why we're able to love all people, even those who disagree with us, even those who reject you. We can still love, but we don't have to tolerate false teaching lord and help us to be vigilant and help us to cling to the morning star we pray this in jesus name amen
2: on the on the night before jesus died he gathered with his disciples and he offered his body and he said take um and eat this is my body broken for you um, for the forgiveness of sins and likewise he poured a drink and said take this as my blood poured out for you and just as we think about that um Imagine whatever it is in life that you're tempted to pursue most um, and then and then think to yourself what what are the sacrifices just as Ryan was talking about that are required for that? what do I have to give to get what I hold most dear um, and do a simple comparison. Scripture talks about counting the cost of following Jesus, what do I have to give to get Jesus versus what do I have to give to get this other thing um, And then just as we were talking about the sacrifice being consumed, um, remember that Jesus was consumed for us, that he um, didn't demand something of us to be right with him. Instead, he gave himself, making us right before the Father. And not only that, he rose again, giving us new life. And so that he is both the treasure of our pursuit and the sacrifice of our pursuit. Um, And so I just would ask you to meditate on that as we go to the table um this is a time to worship to pour out your heart to god to give um if that's how you feel led to worship this morning Uh, father i just thank you for the remembrance that you are both our treasure and our sacrifice that you have given us new life um by the blood of your son and that you um you say come um by you who have no money take and eat um Take take me, you who have no money, um, receive without price and that you took that price on um, the blood of your son being poured out for us, Lord. And I pray that um, we would just, with um, earnest hearts this morning and with sober minds, um, be aware of what you gave for us in um, sparing nothing to give us everything and in a way that now encompasses our entire life and gives our whole life new meaning and also um, employs our entire life in every fiber of our being. Um, I pray that you would just um, bring those truths to mind this morning and awaken our heart's affections to follow you in a way that counts the cost, that realize that you gave everything um, so that we could um, know you and so that we could be a part of your family. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.